the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. If you are not familiar with kind of how we do things at Grace Church of the Bay Area, uh, today is what we call our fifth Sunday Q&A, question and answer. And what that means is every time there are five Sundays in a calendar month, I take the time instead of preaching a sermon to answer any questions that you have submitted beforehand. Uh, and we do that, uh, ends up being about three or four times a year. Before we uh, get to the questions this morning, I uh, got a lot of good ones this time. I do want to uh, briefly address the fact that uh, we are here uh, live stream streaming only once again uh, after having met in person uh, for uh, I think two or three months now. And uh, obviously we hear a lot about this being our new normal and uh, time will tell what uh, normal looks like, life looks like after uh, the vaccine is out and uh, uh, this pandemic is in the rearview mirror. For us as a church, uh, I do want to assure you that this is not normal. Uh, this is not something that should be happening to us as a church, uh, and this is definitely not good. God's people need to be meeting in person and together. With that, I understand that this may be very discouraging. Uh, it's discouraging to me. Uh, I know it's discouraging to you, and I'm sure that even if you never joined us in person since uh, the pandemic started, it's discouraging to you as well uh, to know that your fellow family members who would be meeting together are not meeting together uh, in person. Uh, and uh, just to know that uh, COVID cases are up and churches are getting shut down, uh, this is not a good thing. That being said, uh, obviously for us, uh, things would be very different uh, if we were uh, not subject to the uh, rental policies of our various venues, whether it be a high school uh, or a hotel. Uh, who in turn are subject to uh, the laws and the restrictions of the land. And so we do need to understand that there should be a level of discomfort here. There should be a level of discomfort uh, that we are not able to meet together. Uh, I want to say that because I think especially for those of you uh, who have been live streaming this whole time, uh, there can become a uh, a level of uh, satisfaction and comfort in just worshiping from your home. And, uh, you know, if uh, th th this shouldn't be okay for us, uh, this shouldn't be comfortable for us, you should long to be with God's people. And, in fact, if you were uh, maybe even happy or excited that we went to live stream only again or you find yourself not longing to uh, meet in person but can't for medical reasons or whatever it may be, uh, you might need to do a little tweaking of your heart attitude. God's people, we are a family. And just as last Thursday was awkward for many of you because perhaps it was the first time in years that you didn't see your extended family for Thanksgiving dinner, uh, it should be awkward for you 
uh, sitting at home right now, not being with God's people. That being said, we know that God is good. Uh, we know that God is sovereign and that we know that God is uh, providing. Uh, and w- there's much to be thankful for. Uh, the internet, uh, cameras, laptops, things like that. And so uh, we are thankful for what he has done. Uh, but I just want to assure you that we are doing everything that we can to make sure that we uh, meet back in person as soon as possible uh, and not just when uh, restrictions allow it. Uh, but we can only uh, do so much given our physical circumstances of not owning our own building. You can be in prayer for that, but more importantly, uh, please be in prayer for uh, our church and for your own hearts if you do find yourself um, preferring live streaming or uh, being uh, uh, comfortable live streaming only. Uh, that is an uh, indication that this has uh, gone too long and, and perhaps something needs to change in your perspective on uh, the church and what it means to be part of and with God's people. So, and uh, I do understand that there are many of you who, when we're, we're meeting in person, cannot come uh, because of uh, um, medical issues. Uh, that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, there should still hopefully be a longing uh, to be with God's people. But we'll make the most of it, trusting and submitting to God's plan and purposes uh, during this time. Well, let's get to the questions. Um, the first question that was submitted, are Christians to be unconcerned with conversations surrounding the possibility of life on other planets? Well, in the Bible, uh, God's plan is detailed very clearly for us. His relationship with us is through His Son, and we know that that's a unique relationship. Even in our own world, we know that His relationship through His Son with us is unique. It is afforded by something that was done uniquely and could only be done by God, very God. And there's really nothing in that plan, in that detailed plan, that suggests life on other planets. In fact, when you look at the gospel, when you look at God's glory through his creation and the desire for his own glory in telling of his creative genius, we are actually given reasons why there is not other um, life on other planets. But more to the point of the question, should we concern, be concerned about life on other planets or alien life? Uh, the answer is no. Uh, we shouldn't be concerned about that. It's not something that should be really occupying our time. Um, should, be, should we be involved in conversations about aliens? Uh, to your point of this question, no. But generally speaking, I think you should be involved in any conversation uh, that can be moved towards the gospel and evangelism. And so uh, sometimes that very well may be conversations uh, about life on other planets. Okay? Uh, but uh, to answer simply, the answer is no. Uh, if it's something that's going to consume you, if you're going to be staying up at night looking into it, things like that, that's, uh, you have better things to do uh, with your time. All right. Question number two. Uh, it's kind of a long one, but I want to read it all just to be fair uh, to the person who submitted this question. <clears throat> I came across a book in which the author discusses how women are treated as objects to realize men's hospitality 
as the act of hospitality connotes providing women, food, lodging, and entertainment to meet their male guests' needs. The two stories the author refers to were one, when Lot, when Lot sends out his two virgin daughters to Sodomites to protect the men who have come under the shadow of his roof, Genesis 19, 1 through 11. And number two, in the judges, in order to help his guest from Bethlehem in Judah, the old man, as a host, gives out his own virgin daughter and the guest's concubine to the fellows of Gibeah. And next, the next morning, the con concubine was cut up limb by limb by her master. Judges 19, I was wondering how you would read these two stories. Uh, definitely uh, two of uh, many, but two of the more shocking stories that we read uh, in the Old Testament. Let's start with the story of Lot. The Bible doesn't tell us Lot's reasoning uh, for doing that. Uh, we do know, of course, as a human being, Lot was a sinner. And you've got to remember where he lived. Undoubtedly, he was influenced by the wickedness of the people of Sodom. Second Peter chapter 2 tells us that Lot was positionally righteous. He was positionally righteous before God. In other words, he was a believer. But that doesn't mean he was an example of righteousness. It doesn't mean that everything he did was godly or something that we should model. Secondly, in Judges, the theme of the book of Judges is found in Judges chapter 17 and verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. You've probably heard uh, pastors or, or people quote that verse regarding our world today. It comes from Judges 17, 6. In fact, the whole point of the book of Judges was to show the consequences of these people being unfaithful to God. We see in Judges, Israel's downward spiral of rebellion against God and the need for a man of God to be their king. Now, both of those examples, the example of Lot and the example uh, in Judges, are meant to show us the consequences of wickedness unfaithfulness to God, rejection of God, not walking with God. They are in no way providing for us examples of life, nor are they providing for us examples of how we are to be hospitable uh, in our own lives. And I haven't read this book, but if this book uh, that the uh, asker of this question is referring to is using these examples to kind of show that the Bible is wrong or provides a bad model, uh, what this author is doing, as many secular authors do, is he's cherry-picking examples from the Bible to prove his point without really understanding the context or uh, what the, the point of the passage is. We know as believers that pretty much the entirety of the Old Testament was set up for us as an example, an example of Israel's failure, but God's faithfulness. And Paul even tells the Corinthians that. And so uh, that's, that's quite the important understanding of that, especially because there is uh, no commands in the Old Testament that we as New Testament believers are to follow unless they are repeated in the New Testament. And so 
there uh, are many examples in the Old Testament. Uh, not all of them are examples to follow, but are examples set for us as warnings to us. Okay? Question number three. I was wondering about the biblical perspective on women getting a sperm donor to have a baby. If she did not want to adopt and was unmarried but wanted a child that came from her, or if a guy wanted a kid and just donated his sperm and had a surrogate carry his baby. It seems really complicated and not ideal, but what if they never find a partner but still wanted to have a kid? These issues seem tricky, and I've never heard anyone talk about this in the church, so I was curious. Also, it seems like a lot of these things would be, quote, fine if it was within a marriage, but would seem frowned upon if the person was single, which does not seem fair because they cannot help it that they are not married. Well, let's go from uh, the big principle, big picture, to the specifics about uh, a single person having uh, their own child uh, with their own egg or their own uh, sperm. Uh, God's design for the family, as we've talked about many times uh, in our church, we see in the scriptures as being the core uh, structural element for society, okay? It is the traditional family. In other words, uh, parents of the opposite sex who are married and monogamous, okay? And when you look at the incredibly huge task of raising a child to keep them healthy, not just physically, but also spiritually and mentally, then for Christians, you add the extra responsibility of biblical discipline and instruction, it becomes clear that just on the surface, it's not something an unmarried person should willingly and voluntarily pursue. Now, I do want to make mention that it is a lot more challenging and takes a lot more work to raise a child according to the Scriptures than even to raise a child uh, in a secular home, but very uh, to, to raise them to be very successful and well-behaved and even moral as much as possible according to world, the world standards. Because we are then doing things for the glory of God, we are doing things in a way that is oftentimes contrary to the world. And so raising a child biblically is a lot more challenging and takes a lot more work. That is just adds to uh, why a single person should just not want a child. You, two godly, uh, disciplined Christian parents are really at their wit's end a lot of times doing it together. They can, you know, except for God's incredible help, it's hard to do it even with two people. And so just on a practical level, for one person to do it themselves is very challenging. Now, keep in mind, there are single parents in the church. We're not talking, that's a totally different issue. Whether one of the spouses has left or the spouse has passed away, that's a, you understand that's a totally different issue than what is being asked here. I want to address also 
the idea of being fair because this person says it doesn't seem fair in the church uh, that uh, married couples can have a child but a single person cannot. You need to remember that when we talk about this sort of uh, concept of fairness, when we talk about having a child, we are involving another human being and we need to be concerned about what is best for that child, not for us. That's one of the hardest things about parenting is making a lot of sacrifices even to your own physical well-being and even mental well-being for the sake of the child. And when we talk about fairness, right, not God's fairness, right, when we talk about fairness in light of uh, society's view of equality, uh, trying everyone in society needs to be equal, we are more often than not talking about what we want. We are focusing on self. We are not focusing on others. And the question that's asked never addresses, and this is very important, it never addresses what is fair for the child. It's just single people. It, we should be fair to the single people and give them what they want. And here's the concern that I have. When you talk about this particular issue not being fair for the single adult, it trivializes the child and makes it about or makes him or her about social equality, a human view of fairness, or even just seeing another human being, a child, as an accessory to feel fulfilled or equal. And that's just not biblical in terms of biblical love and sacrifice, which is required in biblical parenting. The Bible tells us that we need to take ourselves and our desires out of the picture. You mean the, out of the picture of parenting? Out of the picture of everything, right? We are to be selfless. Now, my answer would be totally different if this question was saying, I see so many foster children in our country, so many orphans, and the Christian married couples aren't stepping up, and I feel convicted that I need to. The answer would be different. The principles of the traditional family being the best for the child are still the same, but the heart attitude of that single adult becomes more biblical and thus even commendable, right? Because then you're talking about situations like, you know, I went on a missions trip to a third world country, visited this orphanage, there's no one taking these kids, uh, and I, even though I'm single, I want to adopt one of these kids out of this horrible situation, right? The best situation would be for a Christian husband and wife to adopt those orphans, but that's not happening. That's hypothetical. And so, the best situation for that child may very well be for a single Christian to adopt them and raise them on their own. That being said, we as a church would then come alongside that man or woman as a community and help raise that child together. But again, that's not what the question is asking. The question is saying, I want my own child with my own DNA, and that's very different and is not something that should be pursued. Because when you're talking about being fair uh, in what we all should get, 
this leads to being a sperm donor or uh, vice versa, uh, that's just wrong, okay? It, it's not a biblical perspective. It is a very, frankly, spoiled American perspective. We all need to be equal. They have it. I should get it too. I have my career. I have my possessions. Why can't I have a kid too? We need to be very, very careful uh, when we're talking about a social view of equality, especially when it comes to uh, something as important as another human life and your responsibility in that. Question number four. How should Christians view conspiracy theories? Are they worth looking into or should we avoid them altogether? As Christians, we need to be very careful about conspiracy theories. Um, Conspiracy theories have been around all the time. I feel like uh, in recent days, they've been uh, raised to a a greater level of awareness, perhaps because of social media, um, but probably more, more likely because we have two Uh, very large catalysts right now. We have COVID-19, and we we have uh, a president and an election uh, that is very contested and, uh, uh, frankly, divisive, right? But there have been conspiracy conspiracy theories all along. Who killed JFK, for example? Uh, Things like that. Um, When we're talking about, yeah, oh, I read read this article kind of interesting and we laugh and we move on or we watch a movie that brings forth a a, a conspiracy theory and then we leave and that's about it. Uh, That's not what we're talking about. Um, These days, um, and and I'll I'll tell you, I did follow up with the person who asked this question and he did clarify he is talking specifically about things regarding COVID-19 and the election and things that Uh, other Christians are talking about or posting on Facebook. So in that scenario, within that context, we need to be very careful because when you buy into these conspiracy theories or when you promote them, really what you're trying to do is find a a secular and even, uh, they're called conspiracy theories, largely unfounded way to feed your view which often is to feed your anger, to feed your ego, to feed your desire, but really mostly anger. Because people, uh, Christians even, that are uh, promoting these uh, conspiracy theories, especially on social media, they're angry. They're calling other Christians fools and idiots and ungodly and things like that. And their basis is a conspiracy theory, not Scripture. And we've got to be very careful about those things. The, going to the big picture, what's missing from this equation is God's sovereignty and the truth. And then that strays, when you go into these conspiracy theories, this strays from your priority being God's Word. And so you're discontent, you're angry, you're upset, you're not relying on God's sovereignty. And so uh, let me just give you an example. If you truly, truly believe that the elections were rigged and you buy into that and then every judge, every lawsuit is thrown out and come January, President-elect Biden is installed as our new president, 
how are you going to feel in submitting to his authority and praying for him for the next four, possibly eight years if you truly believe without looking at God's sovereignty that he cheated his way into the White House? That is going to affect every aspect of you being an American citizen. And notice nothing in there has anything to do with Bible, God, being a Christian. This is why we need to be careful. If you just like to read them because you're interested in what people are saying, you just kind of laugh it off, or you don't let your life or your emotions be dictated by it, that's different. But if your emotions are being dictated by it, if you're being swayed by it, if you find more hope in in the latest uh, conspiracy theory uh, than you do in Jesus Christ, you get more excited because there, th- someone says, oh, there's this thing and, you know, or whatever, and you're like, oh, yeah, there's proof that the election was rigged, and you get more excited than you do about the fact that Jesus Christ died for your sins, then we have a problem, you see. So when we talk about God's sovereignty, you have to understand that COVID is here because God wants it here. Biden is president-elect, and Trump has been president because God chose them and put them there. And we need to trust him for that and be content with that. Focus on what is true. And what is true is in Scripture. One of my favorite verses uh, that I use in almost every counseling session and discipleship relationship I have is Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things, okay? Conspiracy theories do not fit in any of those categories. Well, let's move on. Question number five. You often say we study God's Word verse by verse, sometimes word by word, because if it's in His Word, we better get it right. How can we apply this thought process in a practical sense when going through some of the books of the Old Testament, such as Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy? Great question. The principle is the same. It is God's Word. We better get it right, and we need to take it seriously. But here's a practical spiritual reality. When it comes to the Old Testament, we have a lot of examples, as we talked about earlier, in the form of narratives rather than commands. And there are certain details that we do want to be clear on to be sure exactly what example to follow or what example to avoid. We need to give it the respect that it that that we give the New Testament because it is the inspired Word of God. But the reality is it will not impact our lives as much as the New Testament will should we misinterpret, for example, the location of a city or the number of soldiers in a a certain army had or or, uh, mispronounce a name, Um, right? We we don't, uh, it doesn't impact our Christian life directly to be able to recall the exact way that the priests were to cut up the body of an animal for the sacrifice, right? 
that principle, those details teach us something bigger. Uh, the exactness of God, the demanding uh, perfection of God and His holiness. And then you tie that into the gospel and how we fail so much and yet we are covered by Christ's blood. Those types of things are important. But again, your life will not hinge on a word in the Old Testament, right? So in the New Testament, the misunderstanding or understanding of literally a single word can change the rest of your life. For example, who is your neighbor? Love your neighbor as yourself. The definition of who your neighbor is will change your life until the day you die. Who are you to love this way? Neighbor as we see it, the, the people in your physical neighborhood, on your block, next door neighbor, just other Christians, just people that you like. And so that's really going to change when we understand that neighbor is anyone you come into contact with, okay? Um, Even the word love, right? Knowing that there's three Greek words that we translate into the word love in English, one of which is not even found in Scripture, to know what kind of love that God loves us with and thus we are to love others with. That changes your life drastically, right? Uh, Whether we are to just treat Christians well or if we are to also love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, right? So um, we uh, still need to treat it as God's Word. Uh, you may not need to uh, exegete or understand every single Hebrew word in the Old Testament, especially in a narrative to understand it. Uh, even back, uh, talk about narratives, even back when we studied Matthew, right? There are only certain words where I would explain to you what they meant, because the rest of the words is narrative. In other words, it's describing that he was walking and there were crowds. There's, there's no need to dig deep and kind of uh, try to understand what those words meant. Okay? Um, so take it seriously. Do your due diligence. Uh, but understand the differences there on a practical level. Question number six. Can church discipline be implemented on faithful attendees of a church, but who are not formal members of the church. Absolutely. Church discipline was instituted by Christ in Matthew 18, and it was not specified for formal members of the church. In fact, uh, back in uh, biblical times, you did not have what we would consider formal membership uh, of the church, where you are called a member and you're distinguished from a regular attender or a visitor or even a membership class or right hand of fellowship or things like that. It didn't even exist back then. And that's because back then, if you were a Christian, it was a given, it was assumed that you would then be committed uh, to a local church and it would be the local church that was closest to you that was in your town or your city. There was not a plethora of of churches. There was not modern uh, uh, technology and forms of transportation. There was no live streaming. There were no people who got saved and then didn't get accountability or didn't serve or were just, uh, you know, just said, uh, you know, I go to this small group, but I listen to John MacArthur. There was none of that. You got fully involved in your local church and served there, and you were served. You ate with them. You you had communion with them. You, uh, you spent the whole day there, oftentimes listening to preaching. That was your community. That was your people. Even, uh, you know, 
outside of modern technology, even the way we live, right? Uh, you know, if we were still meeting at the high school, even if you lived in Burlingame, many of you would not be able to feasibly walk to church as they would back then because things were smaller then, things were uh, closer then. Everyone walked, right? Everything was tight-knit. There wasn't residential areas, and then, you know, everything was just combined. And so things were very different. And so when we talk about formal membership in the modern American church, we got to be careful that things that the Lord commands us to practice uh, on other Christians cannot be limited to certain people, whether they're members or not. So church discipline is for all Christians, and as we saw a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians, all professing Christians as well. So the answer to the question is yes, it can be uh, implemented, church discipline, on faithful attendees of a church who are not members. And I would add, church discipline can be uh, implemented on unfaithful attendees of a specific specific church if this is the church uh, that they are attending, even if it is very sporadic. Although, of course, at that point, the practical specifics uh, become more challenging. But the answer is yes, it can be and should be. Question number seven. In light of 1 Corinthians 6.19, which we looked at recently, how does the Lord view Christians who have been victims of rape? Let me read for you 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 through 20. And this was back when we were looking at uh, immorality, sexual immorality. It says, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your own body. There's a few words and principles here that we understand from the passage, but also about Christianity in general that I want to point out before we get into the answer. The word immorality, the word sin, and the word glorify in the context of glorify God. Being raped or being molested as the victim has nothing to do with those three things. It is not immoral on your part. Obviously, the criminal, the the perpetrator, it's immoral on their part. But you as a victim, it's not immoral. It is not sin on your part. And it is not an attempt to not glorify God. Right? Um, immorality, you have to understand, is a spiritual issue in the heart. Right? It is not so much the physical body. God looks at the heart. Our sin, our immorality starts in the heart and in the mind, and then it's fleshed out in the body. Okay? And you don't become immoral because someone has enacted immorality upon you. You can respond in immorality, of course, but that act in and of itself does not make you a sinner. It does not make you immoral. Uh, for example, you can, uh, you know, I bring this up because people have asked this before. Um, you can go on vacation to Asia, and maybe one of the biggest tourist attractions is a pagan Buddhist temple, 
and you walk in there, and if you have, like me, you probably just feel weird, right? This is because you, you just see uh, the hopelessness of these people. You see uh, 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 the, the pagan worship. But being there does not somehow have a physical influence on you and makes you evil. It doesn't uh, uh, make you apostate, okay? Uh, it, it, it just doesn't work that way. You can't be physically infected with evil. Uh, the same goes with, um, you know, going to, people have asked, you know, I go to a Chinese restaurant and they have a, a, little, uh, a little statue of Buddha with burning incense or, you know, certain aspects of Halloween or uh, even the pagan roots of a lot of uh, holidays that we celebrate as Christians. You, you can't be infected by immorality. And more to the point, um, the final key phrase in this passage, therefore glorify God in your body. You know, if you uh, are a victim of sexual immorality against your will, again, that is not immorality on your part. You are still um, temple of the Holy Spirit. You are still glorifying God. You are not immoral, at least not because of that. Um, it doesn't affect you in, in that way. Now, that being said, uh, if you are uh, a victim uh, of rape or uh, um, incest or any of those types of things, being molested, you do need to speak up. Uh, you do need to remember that you yourself have not sinned. You are not immoral. Uh, obviously, you may feel dirty, you may feel gross, you may feel shamed, um, but you have done nothing in God's eyes uh, to feel that way. And uh, I would encourage you to come to me, come to someone in the church uh, to help work through uh, those issues. It's a horrible thing. Um, I've shared this uh, many years ago, uh, but I actually have a, uh, a friend who I found out years ago um, was followed uh, into her apartment, and uh, her husband was at work. He wasn't home, and the man clearly was intending to rape her, and she was begging him, please don't do this, please don't do this. Uh, he still did, and, and I'm not saying you should do this, but I just, as an example of the distinction, as the man was raping her, she was sharing the gospel with him. And that just shows um, just the difference uh, of being attacked, having sin inflicted upon you, and yet that really, on a spiritual level, has nothing to do with you, despite what other people may accuse you of, despite what even your own uh, thinking and feelings may be telling you. Uh, there's... It, it doesn't cross that, that, that barrier, that line, if you will, okay? Question number eight. Uh, is there a process or amount of time where a once disqualified deacon or elder is no longer considered disqualified for ministry slash leadership? I will tell you this. There are two views on this uh, in the church, uh, and there are uh, good men, good exegetes, theologians, and pastors who... Uh, land on either side of this issue. Some say that once uh, an, a deacon or elder, especially speaking of an elder or pastor, is disqualified, 
uh, they are disqualified for life. They can never serve in that capacity again. The other view says upon repentance, the leader can be reinstated uh, on a practical level, of course, cautiously um, into that position. Now, in that second view, uh, which is assumed in this question, it's not a matter of time, but of repentance. And we understand this even in our own lives, uh, you know, how much time before you repent. Hopefully, repentance is immediate. Hopefully, it is right away. Now, especially for a leader, because we're talking about not just uh, repentance, but repentance and reinstating someone into an official capacity in the church, there needs to be a time of the church and especially the other elders to be able to witness and to confirm that the repentance is indeed genuine and not just lip service. It's full repentance. And so there is no time. What we're looking for is repentance. I will give you one caveat. A disqualified elder uh, or pastor uh, may, on a practical level, though he has repented, not be able to gain the trust of the church again. And so on a practical level, it may simply be unwise to have that person back in that position if he can't effectively shepherd uh, because there's just this disconnect with his people. Now, obviously, there's a problem. You would hope people would be forgiving and, uh, and just see him as someone who has repented. But we understand that, especially uh, considering certain sins uh, that lead to disqualification, that just may not happen again. And so there is a practical caveat there. I would also say that the purpose of church discipline, which this is an example of, right, a a leader being removed from leadership because of not being qualified biblically. By the way, if you're not familiar with this, uh, the scriptures have spiritual qualifications for elders and deacons where that if they don't meet these qualifications or if they did but then break them, they are thus disqualified and cannot hold that office anymore. That's what this is talking about. It is part of church, uh, a form of church discipline. But the goal of that, whether it's a leader, whether it's a deacon, or whether it's just uh, any Christian that goes through church discipline, the purpose and goal is restoration. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So, uh, of course, uh, getting back into leadership uh, takes a bit more, but the goal is restoration. Okay? We have a few minutes for our last question. Question number nine, would Paul have known Jesus before he was crucified since Paul was a Pharisee? Paul held the robes of those who stoned Stephen it seems like he would have been around at the same time of Jesus' life. Yes, Paul and Jesus, when he was on earth, lived around the same time. Uh, We don't know if they actually met. Uh, You would think that that would have been mentioned somewhere, especially by Paul, if he had met him at some point. Uh, But that's an argument from silence, and so we can't be dogmatic about it. 
Uh, as a Pharisee, uh, we do know that Paul would have uh, uh, most likely gone to Jerusalem during the Passover, so he would have been in Jerusalem when Jesus was there, but of course there would have been a lot of people. Uh, as a Pharisee, he uh, most likely would have heard of this man and his teaching and would have wanted to attack him or question him or challenge him as we see other Pharisees doing in the Gospels. Uh, perhaps he joined one of the crowds to listen, um, but again, we don't know for sure and there's no record of that. So, But they were definitely alive on earth and in the same vicinity and region at the same time, which is kind of cool if you think about it. But again, uh, we can't be sure if they actually met or if Paul even saw him uh, from a distance or vice versa uh, during those times. Okay? Uh, great questions. Uh, if there's uh, any follow-up questions from these or even if uh, in our recent or current study, if you have any questions about specifics regarding marriage or singleness or sex or celibacy or any of these things that we've uh, talked about. I know there's a lot uh, of uh, practical issues in marriages. Feel free. You don't need to wait until our next Q&A. You can shoot those uh, questions to me now uh, if you want them answered now or if you want me to answer it at the next Q&A. Uh, in other words, you don't need to submit your questions, you know, the week's leading up to the Q&A, you can do that now if it's on your mind. Uh, please send those in. I, I really enjoy answering these questions. Uh, I really enjoy uh, even hearing what's on your mind and, and how you're, uh, it's really encouraging to hear how you're wrestling with the scriptures uh, and the practical outworkings of the scriptures in your life. So thank you for those questions. Never be embarrassed to send those in. Well, let me close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, the, the desire you give us as Christians to want to know more, to know how to honor you more, how to understand your word more, how to know you better. I pray, Father, that you would uh, continue to help us to seek answers from your word and not from the world or not from psychology or whatever else it may be, uh, definitely not even our own imaginations or opinions, but stick to the word. Help us to be humble enough to know that if we have a, a strong even conviction or belief about something that your word proves to be false, that we would quickly change our minds and adhere to what you desire and what you have told us. Continue to grow us through these answers and through your leading and through uh, your, your guidance and leadership. Thank you, Father, for uh, uh, the privilege of shepherding a faithful flock uh, that is uh, even growing during these uh, strange times. We pray that we will be together again soon, and that you will continue to provide, continue to grow us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, why don't we all stand as we close in song?